This is an European Public Service Union podcast. Welcome to another episode of APSU Podcasts, your online resource for learning about initiatives and projects undertaken by public service labor unions, as well as the struggles uh, they experience and the challenges they face. I'm Bojan Stanislavski, and I'll be your host. Today, the co-host is Pablo Sanchez, EPSU's Communication and Public Relations Officer. Hello, Pablo. Hello. Good morning. And now I'd like to introduce our special guest, Andrea Oates. She's a freelance health and safety writer based in the United Kingdom. She mostly works with uh, trade unions and other labor organizations. She's also the author of EPSU's most recent report, COVID as an Occupational Disease, which was published in September. Andrea, welcome to the show and thank you for being here. Thank you. Good to be here. Right. So uh, how about we start with uh, the notion of, of occupational disease? What does it mean exactly and why, why is it important for, uh, uh, for the unions and for the working class in general uh, that the COVID is recognised as such? Um, okay, so um, an occupational disease is a health condition or disorder um, caused by the work environment or work-related activities. Um, and in, you know, in many countries, if you're, um, you know, obviously, uh, uh, often that's quite straightforward if it's, um, you know, kind of something that... Um, you know, is associated with um, particular types of work. So I suppose thinking about um, exposure to asbestos, for example, it, you know, it's, it's there's compensation schemes for workers who've been um, exposed to asbestos. It's, it's, you know, kind of, it's more difficult with something like COVID. Um, the problem that unions have, have faced is that because it's um, people are getting infected in the community or at home as well it's it's much more difficult to um, pin down um, the fact that people have been infected at work um, although obviously we know despite um, under reporting and under recording that lots of people have um, you know particularly health and social care workers but you know other frontline uh, key workers as they you know as we call them in the UK um, you know we know that they are being infected at work um, because we've you know we've seen thousands of um, workplace outbreaks and you know thousands or thousands of workers have um, died as a result of Covid in in some of those um, uh, occupations um, and I mean, in, you know, in the UK alone, we've got a million people um, with long COVID and, and lots of them will have been um, infected in workplace and, and school outbreaks that have been taking place. Um, so I think there's kind of three key reasons why it's important for, um, for unions to kind of win this recognition that COVID is a, an occupational health issue and not just a public health issue. Um, so, I mean, one of them is is giving access to financial compensation to people who, um, you know, not whose health's affected, but also their kind of finance, their livelihood's been affected because they're, uh, affected because they're not able to work. Um, it almost it's it also helps if people, um, you know, have to take a compensation case through the courts. Um, 
because there's there's kind of more evidence um, that this is you know something that's being caused in workplaces. This is a, an occupational disease. Um, but I think also unions would argue that the most important thing um, is kind of having that recognition in public policy that COVID is an occupational disease and needs to be, um, you know, treated as an occupational health and not just a public health issue. Um, and I think there's a, a, because it's being treated as a public health and not an occupational health issue in a lot of countries, this kind of... Um, you know, a sense that there's nothing that workplaces can do, nothing that employers can do. Um, and so, you know, I'm sure it's the same in other countries, but in the UK, um, you know, there's this sort of theatre of hygiene, it's been called. There's lots of, you know, hand sanitizers and lots of kind of disinfecting going on, um, but actually nothing to control the airborne risk of COVID in, in a lot of workplaces. Um, and I think unions would say that that's because, you know, if you, we don't treat it as an occupational health issue. We kind of don't miss opportunities to use that hierarchy of prevention and controls that's set out in occupational health and safety legislation. So you start with elimination and then work through to substitution and then engineering and administrative controls and, and personal public protection, uh, personal protective equipment kind of at the bottom of the hierarchy. Um, and I think we're losing that by we're losing that opportunity in a lot of places by not, um, you know, treating this as an occupational health issue. Right. But uh, just to specify one thing here, uh, occupational disease, most people who understand that term uh, or, or have encountered it previously, they they probably associate it with something that is related to the very nature of the work that someone's uh, doing, performing. Uh, and you mentioned the question of exposure to asbestos, for example, or, or things like that. Whereas this uh, is something else because it's not related to the nature of the uh, of the work, or, or, or uh, it's not uh, limited to one branch. Uh, it's uh, it still could be treated that way, right? I mean, it the the, the legal framework is there in general. Yeah, if you, if there's more, you know, if there's more. Um... Uh, probability of you you know if there's a higher risk in your occupation and that you know there's that's that's clearly the case um for um you know health and social care workers um but also you know in the uk the office for national statistics has, has sort of found um you know a higher much higher risk for um you know, taxi drivers, for example, or drivers more more generally, security guards. Um, so, so there's evidence. Um, you know, there's evidence of a higher risk of contracting um, COVID for a lot of occupations. Um, I think. I mean, I'm sure we're going to talk about this. The the right. problem is that um, the way that different systems across Europe rec recognize that. Right, so, so before we before we go there, right, thanks, thanks. Before we go there, I, I would like to first, uh, Pablo, please weigh in. You were uh, yeah, yeah, raising uh, just, your hand. Because uh, that, that, there was a moment where she said something extremely useful. It's like the, the increased risk, because if we just park COVID as if it didn't happen, if we, if, if we can do that, uh, let's take cancer. You know, cancer also is, widespread in society and it's there's people who do not acquire it because i mean at work but there is 
hundreds of thousands that they do because the risk at work it's much much higher and the issue is if you do not have a protective legislation you actually need to uh, prove it uh, just as again following with 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 this we have uh, people litigating trying to prove that reprotoxins have caused them cancer uh, now what, what do you deal with reprotoxins mostly when you actually work in the health sector so but um, you know, you need to go through the studies of the ILO, of your health and safety agency, and so on, in order to prove that, look, this is a living case. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not making this up. I worked for 15 years in a lab of a, of a hospital, and I had three miscarriages, and I had this, and I had that. I mean, there is a link here. And, but then you need to prove it in court. Uh, as an individual worker, this is extremely expensive. And without a legislation that actually says that uh, what's the way or, or, or saying it in a way that is, is beneficial to, to, to the average worker. So it's like you don't need to have an ILO study behind you on, on your particular sector, in your particular case. Um, if you don't have that, you, you're just not going to be able to prove it because you don't going to have the resources. Um, so the, the point here is that you, you need that the... the the protection, the legal protection for people to actually say, look, uh, in this workplace, I'm more exposed to these things. So if I actually get them, it's not by chance. It's not like a public health problem that you could consider cancer as a public health. I mean, smoking would probably cause cancer, but working in a nuclear plant would probably cause, cause it more. So when you have certain diseases, you. so I think that is an important element because at the end of the day, um most uh, professional illnesses can actually be also lumped in with public health and he actually uh, lets employers get away with murder and we see it with uh, with asbestos we see, it, we see it with cancer and we actually saw it also with COVID. And, and there was this gap in the legislation um in many places so that's why in in the, one of the demands of unions quite quickly was to recognize this occupational disease for those that were actually uh, they could not telework and they were exposed and there was no protective equipment. And on top of that, we didn't know if that protective equipment was actually useful at the very beginning. You remember, you know, masks are, are not, uh, the, the Europeans were saying the masks are useless. The Asians were saying it's not. Uh, the WHO was just like in the middle. So I think it's an important to have, a, I mean, important, essential for the life of workers to have a legislation that actually uh, protects you before things happen because okay it's a public health issue yes but then you're more exposed and that's the key element in this right uh you said something pretty important uh that the proper legislation would not allow uh employers to get away with certain things and and in this particular respect andrea and let me uh, go back to you what what does such a legislation uh how does such a legislation, how does this recognition of COVID as an occupational disease prevent employers from getting away and with what? Um, I mean, I, th I, th I think it's about, uh, I suppose what I went back to in terms of um, that there's recognition that this is a, an occupational health issue and employers that you know there's there's 
health and safety legislation in place that says you need to, um, you know, carry, assess the risk and you need to put um, measures in place. And, um, you know, and, and I talked about that hierarchy that employers should be um, working through. Um, and that should be happening around COVID. And I think it's not happening um, because there's this, as I was saying before, there's this kind of, um, you know, this is a public health issue. This is, you know, people are being infected um, at home in the community. Um, there's, you know, nothing we can do at work. So, so obviously some employers are getting it right um, at this stage. Um, but, you know, in terms of employers getting away with it, I think, I mean, in the UK, there's been very few, I mean, we've only just had our first prosecution um, of a, an employer. Um, so I think we've had something like officially, you know, 4,000, uh, around 4,000 outbreaks in workplaces and around even even more in schools, in educational settings. Um, you know, clearly people have been infected at work and yet we've had no, well, say we've, we've had the first prosecution recently um, and that wasn't particularly COVID specific. It, it included COVID, but it was on a building site. So there was, you know, it, it, it arose from a, a kind of a spot check. Um, but there's also a massive problem with under-reporting and under-recording. So that, I mean, uh, that comes across um, in work yeah, that Amnesty's done. Sorry. Yeah, let me just ask uh, one um, uh, question here to to uh, clarify the question of underreporting. Uh, do you think that had COVID been recognized as an occupational disease, that would prevent uh, underreporting at least on such a massive scale? I, I think it would help. I think it would be much okay. clearer. Um, you know, that I, I think it would be much clearer that this is something that is um, happening in workplaces and employers need to record it and report it. Okay. Um, but yeah. if I may chip in on this, there is a yeah. European legislation, which I think the UK is still bound to, or for a little while. Uh, there are four types of uh, occupational diseases and, and the most, the, the worst, so to say, type four, it's uh, very contagious no treatment, deadly uh, illness. Now, the EU classified COVID as type 3. And there was a debate in the European Parliament with absolutely every single employment committee MEP, so those that actually deal with this, they were asking, how, what, I mean, I'm reading the classification and this is type 4. And the argument was like, look, um, the the constraints of a type 4 uh, professional illness is that we need to change, for instance, their conditioning of uh, offices and so on and so forth. And there are very few chemical facilities in Europe that actually can continue the research for the vaccine while um, declaring this type 4. So we'll revise the directive end of last year well, end of this year, so now, which they haven't done, that's okay. And then you declare a trip type three. So we'll allow the research to continue. And this is what happened. Um, just saying that the legislation is there, but the, the, then the issue is enforcement. Mm -hmm. 
and I, I, we have a general problem with with health health and safety. Well, that's my personal view. Is that in the last few years it started to be seen more and more, even for policymakers. So not just for employers who they usually see like mm, uh, you know an increased cost and so on and so forth, but as a nuisance for you know the economy and things. So they're actually not saying the externalities that go with it. That the problem is that if you don't have a good and enforceable health and safety policy, people die. Right, so, right. So uh, I think that's very important what you just said, and let's stay with it because Andrea previously uh, spoke quite extensively on the question of of the risk of exposure to uh, coronavirus. So uh, perhaps let me quote from the from the report. Uh, there's a sentence there. Apsu argues that uh, where someone's work activities place them at risk of exposure to coronavirus, which is higher than uh, that for the general population, COVID-19 should be recognized and compensated as an occupational disease. Uh, now, when you read this, you feel like it's, it mostly relates to uh, the workers in the healthcare sector, right? Or is it, is it broader? That's to me? Yeah. Well, it's also waste uh, workers, it's firefighters, it's uh, people, uh, the contact, uh, social services, of course, mm -hmm. but um, and, and beyond is, uh, well, those that actually were still working, transport workers. Uh, just in Brussels where I live, there was outbreak after outbreak in every single of the depots at the beginning of the pandemic because the trams and the buses and the metro had to continue to work. And there were strikes. They were using uh, the right to withdraw, uh, which is something that is actually a loophole in the European legislation. I mean, many countries that if you do not feel safe to work, you it's not a strike. It's just you stop working because your health and safety is a danger, and and there is a, a legal vacuum there, which uh, exists in many countries, um, and they used it. And I actually used it because there was a researcher that published an article saying, if I was you, I would use the right to withdraw, which is, uh, you know, in other cases, for instance, in, in the UK, when the, the firefighters won, were or are on strike, most train drivers on the underground just don't go in. This is too dangerous because if there is a problem, who's going to pull me out? No one, because they're on strike. So it's seen by many as a solidarity strike, but the, at the end of the day, when there is an accident and there is 300 people there, they're looking for responsibles. But when those workers say this is this is a health hazard for me and for everyone else, uh, so transport workers, well, you know, people in I mean, workers of supermarkets, the list goes on and grows to a sizable percentage of the working population, and 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 that's what we're basically saying that you can basically you're exposing yourself. Uh, without protection and without compensation. Okay, uh, let's elaborate on that uh, in a little while. I first want to go back to the question of, uh, uh, well, of this recognition of COVID as an occupational disease. And uh, Andrea, uh, I want to go to you now because uh, from the report, I learned that some countries uh, have actually recognized or have taken steps in order uh, for COVID-19 to be recognized as an occupational disease. Uh, 
and they are actually even listed out uh, in the report. It's, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Sweden, Germany, Spain, France, and Austria. Uh, and there are two questions here. First, what is preventing other governments in Europe to actually enact such legislation or to include on the basis of the already the, the legislation that is in place COVID as such an uh, as such as an occupational disease? And what are the nuances? Because you already mentioned that in the beginning of the program that it's it's a complicated thing uh, from, from the point of view of legislation and all the health and safety measures that were taken uh, during the pandemic? Okay. Um, yeah, so those, those countries that you listed, Sweden, Spain, Austria, Germany and France, they were um, identified in international research as being the top five countries in terms of um, government level support and recognition for, for COVID. Um, so the um, European Trade Union Institute is also doing a, a kind of big piece of research where um, they're bringing together researchers in a series of three webinars. Um, they've had two so far and looked at 19 different countries. Um, I mean, they describe it as complex and contrasted. So there's, you know, there's countries have all different systems, um, you know, in place um, to, you know, for the, the sort of different systems for for recognising occupational disease and deciding which occupation, you know, which diseases you're going to be rec um, recognising as work re related and how you go about compensating them. Um, but I think in general, um, the research found that the, I mean, some of the um, uh, Scandinavian countries have, have kind of, um, you know, been ahead on this and rec recognised. Um, uh, recognize COVID as a, an occupational disease. Um, uh, so for example, so I th think it's true to say that in the UK, we, I mean, we've just not had any, you know, there's countries where there's not been any recognition, whereas um, in Finland, um, they'd accept, I mean, they've had much lower levels of, of COVID infection than us. And, and um, by May this year, um, Finland had accepted 304 out of 355 cases as occupational diseases as, and as I say they've had much at that point um, and probably I'm sure still um, will have had lot, uh, um, far lower levels than um, far level far lower levels of infection than than some other countries um, so in some cases um, countries like France have recognized um, COVID is an occupational disease for healthcare workers. Um, but the report on France for the European Trade Union Institute talks about um, employees in sectors such as retail, transport and cleaning um, having to run a medico-administrative marathon. Um, so there's um, just talking about that international research and something that um, EPSO is calling for. Um, if I can just find it, is um, this kind of presumptive, you know, the ideal is having a kind of presumptive policy or no-fault no policy, I think we'd call it in the UK, where you kind of have a, you know, where you don't have to... Um, so Pablo was talking about the difficulties in having to prove that, you know, that you've got an occupational disease. 
Um, and COVID's new, you know, it's really, sometimes it takes decades of evidence to kind of build up a, a case to recognise an occupational disease as being work-related. And COVID's new, um, you know, th there wasn't a test Oh, it seems like we've lost Andrea for a short while. Uh, Hello? Pablo, okay. Uh, well, she'll be back probably very, uh, very soon. Anyway, uh, let's use the time. And because she uh, mentioned uh, demands, and. Uh, oh, here Gone. she is. Oh. Right. Hello. Something. Uh, there was a technical problem, right? Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. So, that's you, right. you, you, when you said the in UK, you call it. Of, uh, how you call it? Um, well, our system is no fault. Yes, you call it no that. fault. Um, but but it's yeah, which is great for those occupational diseases that have been recognised. But the, the problem with the system that we've got is it was based on, like I said earlier, these kind of you know traditional or historic kind of heavy industries. Really, mm. it, it mm -hmm. doesn't it doesn't work for something like a pandemic um but you know the the countries that i would kind of um point to as uh, i mean finland although i think they've got a kind of indicative rather than, a, than exhaustive list list their system has been able to recognize and compensate people um at france they've got automatic recognition for healthcare workers but but not other workers um, at, at least when we did the report and you know they're kind of evolving systems um, and I think one of the uh, the Czech Republic, um, they've got a system of, as I understand it, they've got a no fault system and have um, recognised several hundred cases as being um, an occupational disease. Um, uh, and the, in Denmark, the Danish Union is quite early on, actually, in April 2020, um, recognised recognition of COVID as an occupational disease. Um, and the relaxation of the process for proving infection is a huge victory they um, they talked about. So, I mean, I think some of... So there is progress in this respect. There is progress. General. And I think probably some of it comes down... I mean, Pablo probably knows more about this than me, but I, I kind of, you know, think that probably some of that has got to do with the strength of the trade union movement. Exactly. And, and that's, that, that's where I would like to go now, because... Uh, well, you mentioned the question of demand and pressure. And uh, Pablo, uh, tell us, what are APSU's demands in this respect? And uh, also, how were you in contact collecting data and opinions from unions federated in, in APSU? Uh, perhaps later we could also talk about where the situation is good and, and, and where is it uh, bad and how the trade unions react to it. Uh, but First and foremost, what are APSU's uh, demands, the most important ones in this uh, aspect? Well, I mean, there, of course, recognition of COVID as a occupational disease uh, for the EU, of course, would be easy if this comes from a regulation or something. Um, but beyond, you know, globally, you know, uh, what we also have seen in the last decade or so is a lack of engagement at the ILO level. So the international labor organization, for instance, employers were not happy to talk about the right to strike, the right to strike, no, just just the, the possibility of, of withdrawing your labor. So it's difficult uh, at the moment. Uh, and, and I mean, you don't need to be uh, like a very well 
establish uh, social sciences research to for uh, pro the legislation that is protective to workers high density of trade unions is the best uh, solution <laughs> seems to me like uh, um or a capacity of the trade unions to influence a particular government for whatever reason um, but that's what the list of the countries that actually were faster that doesn't make the countries like some sort of paradise but there was a you know a capacity by the trade union movement and by, you know, at the end of the day, by workers to get protective uh, or more protective legislation than in those countries where they still hasn't been recognized, where we have another spike, where there was no protective equipment. Um, or no measures for that or, matter, because well, it, it's I mean, also like the case of Romania, for example, it's uh, pretty uh, emblematic, I would say, in this respect, because Romania is now ranks number one in all kinds of COVID complications statistics, like deaths and, and hospitalized people and all the rest of it. And uh, the unions there were crying, literally, for, you know, for the government to do something and to take preventive measures, but no, nothing happened. And now this is the result. And I wonder like, if you could just tell us a few words about how EPSU uh, is collect, you know, working with the unions that, cre that form EPSU uh, in this respect. Like, are you getting uh, data and opinions and, and, and all kinds of other uh, things on, on a regular basis? How, how does it work? How is it organized? Well, yeah, we do. I mean, uh, with the pandemic, we basically start a round of permanent almost uh, every other week, um, catching up with different affiliates. Also, the measures were changing at a speed that when you had finished speaking with half of them, the, the you started the second round, the measures of the first round had already changed. Mm -hmm. So it was quite complicated. Um, and also there were different measures according to the sector, so that you have the health sector, you have the residences, uh, so the elderly care, disabled, and then you had, uh, you know, in some places you couldn't go, some of the places you could go, some places people would get tested, some other places people didn't get tested. It was, it was very chaotic, and, uh, and, and there was no clear, I mean, there were recommendations by the international and European institutions, but the enforcement was very, very uh, irregular and according to the capacity of the country and so on. So, yeah, we've done a fair amount of Zooms. We also have this report that they have drafted uh, based on, on those conversations and, and, and that data. And you also um, had some conferences, if I remember correctly, like during yes, the summer in particular. Yes, yeah. yes. we tried to uh, gather and, and, in fact, uh, we're also publishing very, very soon another report uh, on, on long-term care and COVID and also the impact it's having in the profession. Not just deaths, it's just people stopping working right. in right. elderly care homes because it's too risky, basically. I mean, it's just like, it's not worth it because you yeah, 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 of very little and then you die. So, I mean, in the last two years, in the lap of the, from 2019 to 2021 in the U27, we've lost 421,000 carers in, mm. in, in Europe, which is a huge amount of, uh, of workers. And it's the combination of, of, of increasing rhythms of um, bad pay or, or poor pay and, and a high risk uh, or, or very high risk of contamination. Right. We, we saw the number of deaths. Uh, uh, that the other thing of all the surveys we've done is 
is the very patchy uh, data that we have at the European level. For instance, the UK is one of the few countries that actually recorded deaths in care homes, in hospitals, of workers and patients. But if not, there was this lump sum of people who've died for, for, from COVID, which does not allow you to see um, how. I mean, why? What's the, apart from the age group, you don't know if it is. Yeah, and uh, I guess this speaks to the question of underreporting that Andrea mentioned. Okay, yes. uh, well, we're running rapidly out of time, so I would like to uh, invite both of you to make some closing remarks. Uh, Andrea, please, you go first. Okay. Um, so I think EPSU is absolutely right when they're saying that, um, you know, people, have, workers have been infected at work because of the failure of governments and employers to properly protect, protect them. Um, you know, and they shouldn't have to be worried about sort of financial ruin as well while they're recovering. You know, they should be properly protected. Um, and, I, I, you know, I, I think it's really key for um for COVID to be recognised as an occupational health issue in public policy, because I think that will, um, you know, make a difference in terms of prevention and put more pressure on, um, you know, properly having some proper enforcement of health and safety standards around COVID. Um, so, you know, it's it's not just about compensation. It's also about, um, it's, you know, it's about prevention and it, you know, that, that's kind of a really important aspect of it to me. Right. Thanks a lot. Pablo, uh, what are your... No, I've spoken remarks? a lot already. <laughs> uh, don't want to repeat myself. But um, uh, just to, to echo this idea that uh, prevention and protection is, is actually not... I mean, if it's perceived as a cost by public policy, uh, we have an issue because... Um, you know, it's, it's protecting uh, workers' lives. And um, and as a European organization, one of the main things we can actually do is to work on legislation to be protective in terms of health and safety and rights. Uh, as a European organization, we can really work on, on wages, for instance. But we do have, we can and we have work on, on health and safety and it's becoming increasingly difficult and, and uh, you know, it's important for organizations at the local, regional, national level also to realize that this is an important field of work. Right. Thank you very much. And uh, I would like to invite all our viewers or listeners to uh, go to the APSU's website, APSU.org, and to look for the report that we uh, mentioned today and that Andrea uh, wrote and uh, to also subscribe to APSU's Telegram channel and to visit APSU's profiles on uh, various social media platforms. Thank you very much. Stay healthy. We'll be with you again soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you very Bye. much. Thank you. This is an European Public Service Union podcast.